0: We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode.
1: Hello to everyone listening to the Planet Mask Podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Bo Sejwade. And this was a chat that originally started because I came across um, you know, the LinkedIn page saw so where mutual connections and also Memorized when I saw his uh, past ex- experiences and businesses that I saw his uh, you know recent venture on um, WeFunder dot which is you know a small business investment page that you know I sometimes check out. But really, uh, I wanted to reach out about his current business on TouchGo, and this is a current business in the DFW area that actually transforms local ride-sharing into cost-effective forms of marketing that, you know, people in the ride-sharing industry can use. So thank you again, Bo, for, you know, taking out the time today to um, honestly chat about your business, but, you know, kind of like what it's been like with COVID, um, you know, the process on WeFunder and just what it's like to be an entrepreneur in the DFW area. So thank you again, man.
2: Yeah, thank you, Grayson. A pleasure to be here on the podcast and happy to and uh, excited to get things off and uh, started.
1: Definitely. Well, I guess I wanted to kind of start it off on just asking, you know, did you know, I I guess kind of early on, like in, you know, childhood, were you always kind of doing like small businesses or did you like um, kind of the world of being an entrepreneur?
2: Yeah, uh, to be honest, I've always felt like an outlier. I think that's just my, Mm -hmm. um, personality, um, always going against conventional wisdom, uh, just for the sake sometimes of just finding a new or innovative way to solve a problem. So I Mm -hmm. think I naturally found myself, uh, whether it was school or just working in corporate America, um, I was able to excel, but I quickly got burnt out or bored easy or asking for more responsibilities or challenges. You know, typically that's not how things work, right? So I think it naturally became um, a path that, you know, I was going down. So um, it hasn't been easy to be an entrepreneur, but, you know, Mm -hmm. when I weigh the, how I feel on a day-to-day basis prior to, you know, the status quo. being a w2 it's you know it's more rewarding Mm
1: -hmm. and uh you know were you kind of launching businesses before like the idea of one touch go or you know was there anything that came across that because i know like you were definitely um you know into kind of a corporate career like before that where you're doing like vp of sales at some companies were you doing any types of like side hustles
2: yeah, so um, my first sort of official there was really two things, right? As far as me actually having a, a business entity, um, you know, number one, um, I had a marketing agency where we would do, uh, you know, web anything from web development to managing advertisement campaigns for clients, and they typically were um, home service companies, and we did that for a variety of companies um, in Texas and uh, even other states like Florida. Um, So a lot of the ideas that I've brought to the table on TouchGo actually stem from that experience with advertising. And then number two, um, I actually had a consulting firm as well. Um, And basically what we aimed to do was um, save uh, companies money with their uh, expenses. And right and so mm-hmm. I did that for you know maybe a year that was called Bow and Company and figured out you know I didn't really like that right so it's like I've had two experiences where you know I've tried things I didn't really you know without really even thinking through do I like it all the way and so you know from those I guess learnings you know it, it's prepared me to handle on touch go I, I would say a lot better
1: mm-hmm And with kind of, I guess, that transition on realizing that, you know, you're within organizations that you weren't a huge fan of and that you wanted a uh, kind of a change. When I kind of saw your business, I was kind of wondering, like, uh, you know, were you uh, constantly going out in the DFW area? Did you uh, go to a lot of happy hours or were you in kind of uh, that scene or, you know, how did that go?
2: Yeah. So I, I live downtown, um, uh, in Uptown and, um, you know, you know, I've, well, majority I'd say I'd lived downtown since I've been 20, right. And so I'm go- turning 26 next month. So, you know, quite a long, uh, quite a long time, right. Or fair time, uh, amount of time. And so, yeah, going out a lot. Um, I don't get to go out as much as I like anymore because, you know, barely have time for anything right now. Um, but yeah, a lot of the ideas from OnTouchGo actually happen organically um, because I would use Uber every day and I would, you know, mm. like a normal you know, millennial or young adult, you know, go to a happy hour bar with my friends. And um, one day we went to a bar called Happiest Hour in Victory Park in Dallas mm. and it was empty. It's usually full after like Mavericks or Dallas Stars games. And so I, I say, hey, it would be cool if our Uber driver could recommend places based on sort of like life location data. And then uh, us kind of working at the same place, which was a company called Solera, right? Which used to be a startup that went all the way to IPO, right? And the uh, founder of that company is now the CEO of Canoe, Tony Aquila. Um, so, you know, being around that energy, right, of already working for a tech company, it just helped us kind of, come into this idea, you know, all from the experience of being downtown and, uh, you know, uh, wanting to discover better places.
1: Mm -hmm. In that, in that Solera experience, uh, you kind of talked about like its growth into its official IPO. Were were you a part of that environment? Like before it reached this IPO and like, you know, how unique is that type of environment where I guess like where you're in an organization with, where it's kind of growing that quickly?
2: Yeah, great question. So um, no, I was uh, post IPO. So actually Solera's sort of um, story is they were an IPO. They were acquired off the public market by Vista Equity Partners, which is owned by Robert F. Smith. He's like um, one of the most prominent African-Americans in the the country Um, and, you know, just a business icon in general for minorities. And so kind of where I, I guess started working at Solera. There, it was a point of time in the company where uh, they were trying to be more efficient with capital in general and kind of grow the company to where it could be reacquired, right? Because that's kind of what Vista Equity does with private equity. And so, um, yeah, I guess my experience in time there was uh, kind of really fun because you see the acceleration of a business, you know, taking a business that's done relatively well, right, in its history, but pushing it to the extreme, right? And, and, and seeing and learning from that experience, you see a lot of interesting things. Hmm.
1: When you kind of mentioned like the idea of working with extremes, I know kind of like some people will kind of enjoy that environment because of when you're kind of in a startup startup, you don't have like a single specific role. Sometimes you have to have your hands in multiple different departments because you know, maybe the staff isn't as big and, you know, it's fastly growing. Was there anything that, I guess, any like key departments or anything you learned from uh, Solera that, you know, you took over to your new business?
2: Yeah. You know, um, the biggest thing I gained from Solera was a self-confidence and just Mm -hmm. self-awareness of my skills and abilities. Um, You know, I worked there basically close to two years, but I was able to advance very quickly, right? And I'm thankful to have worked for an organization that kind of um, rewards employees that go above and beyond, because um, I think I had took taken some of that entrepreneurial grit from my previous um, startups, if you will, and just tried to be an intrapreneur instead of an entrepreneur, which is uh, by definition, someone that tries to do what an entrepreneur does, but within an established organization. And um, so I guess, yeah. Uh, And then outside of that, I've got to, you know, I went from just being a software sales consultant to being a director of a product uh, sales and and also marketing for a product of Solera. And then also uh, traveling. I got to travel to Los Angeles and and, work with uh, a couple uh, key accounts. And so I, I think the biggest takeaway was, you know, the self confidence that and the introduction to tech, right? Because um, prior to that, mm-hmm. um, in corporate America, the only equivalent um, sort of company I would say that I worked at was uh, a company called Frontier, which is telecommunications. So it, it was just a good introduction mm-hmm. to tech in general, and gave me a good self confidence.
1: Mm-hmm. And I kind of never, I, I guess, really heard that expression, the entrepreneur versus entrepreneur. I, I guess was that like a was it a smooth or a rough transition going from, you know, having those entrepreneur characteristics in an established corporate company versus, you know, starting your own like from scratch?
2: Yeah. So what I will say, it just depends on timing, right? Um, you know, we, we're all familiar mm-hmm. with companies that, you know, um, sort of, push down on employees that make recommendations, but there's a handful of them that actually encourage that, right? And typically, the companies that an entrepreneur would thrive in are companies that um, are in a growth stage, right? They, they're they looking to grow. They, they have numbers that their shareholders are expecting, right? And so um, pressure creates diamonds. So I think if you're an entrepreneur or want to be an entrepreneur, that's a great type of stage of company you should latch onto versus a company that's kind of stable, you know, has done the same thing relatively for the, you know, the last X number of years and is not looking to rock the boat.
1: Mm-hmm. And kind of with, uh, I guess, back to the idea of, uh, you know, at, hap- at Happiest Hour, kind of throwing those ideas around and, you know, you're with uh, uh, with coworkers who are interested in the idea What was, I I guess, the first step from there, you know, when you, you know, have you kind of noticed this thing with ride sharing that the idea of, uh, you know, making recommendations isn't really out there, you know, especially in the DFW area. What was kind of the uh, first step from there into turning this into an actual business?
2: Yeah. So, um, well, I hosted an event, hosted a event or an event at my uh, apartment um, and I had a projector, which um, basically covered the entirety of one wall in my apartment. And, you know, we had Google Sheets and, you know, Google Docs opened up and we were just uh, bullet pointing different ideas. Um, and there was a couple people at that event. Uh, but at the end of the day, there was only three, including myself, that took it seriously. Um And so from there, right, the idea of like a tablet in the back seat on a headrest wasn't clear to us originally. What kind of happened a week or two after that event at my apartment was um, one of my co-founders had went to uh, New York and they got into a taxi cab. They saw a taxi TV, and then in the same amount of of time, um, another co-founder went to Austin and they actually saw um, a company called Octopus, which they're a cool company. They also do write your advertising and they have gamification on it, right? So they typically allow you to play like a game and get a reward. And so imagine how it felt, right? Sort of like a movie script where, uh, you know, the two people I kind of started things with come back and say, oh, we all saw a tablet in a car it just became obvious, right? And so Mm. that's kind of how it avalanched. And then, you know, from that point, we just spent a couple thousand dollars on buying a couple dozen tablets to test out the idea roughly and see how people would react as passengers and drivers having a tablet showing them advertisements. Um, And one thing we all agreed on originally is like, we hate ads, funny enough, like we hate ads, like, you know, we don't want to see the, same saturated ad. We wanted to create sort of like a information-based ad, if that makes sense. Like we're highlighting local things, things people are more probable to go to based on the types of trips people usually take with RightShare. And so we created sort of like a a local boutique um, aesthetic to our advertisements. And so we're able to get a lot of participants that way. And you know, people came back, and there was like, "Yo, people are changing their destination to go this to this one local advertiser, all because it it was relevant to them." And people love this, and I'm getting tip. My tips are going up, in X, Y, and Z. So it it, mm-hmm. it was all like following a movie script. In short, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. At the I guess at the beginning, when you're kind of mentioning, um, you know, hosting in your apartment, uh, showing people. Uh, this new idea and only like two people are interested was there i, I guess a specific qualities you're looking for when you're thinking of like co-owners or co-founders for this business
2: um originally no it it, it just seemed like friends you know trying something it, it, sent, mm-hmm. it at, at first it, it was like very much an experiment um we didn't you know we didn't attorney up we didn't you know, none of that. It was like, hey, I'll throw a couple thousand bucks. You throw a couple thousand bucks. Let's just see what happens. And then if something happens, then we can talk about this later. Right. Mm-hmm. Um And so even though we incorporated March of 2019, I always say, you know, we were really operational for a little bit over a year now um, since uh, I'd say June, July 2020.
1: Mm-hmm. And like with the idea of, um, you know, t- spending like the first couple of grand on these new tablets and putting them in, and you're kind of saying you don't want the commercials to be, uh, you want them to be curated to the actual writer. So do you have like specific like qualifications on like what a company can submit or like what type of commercials they can send in?
2: Yeah, that's, um. Great question. So we have a content um, policy and basically each of these um, advertisements to 30 seconds, our typical advertiser tends to be um, like a local restaurant, a local hotel, a local bar. And then we have strong direct to consumer brands or uh, national brands that want to tap into this unique form of Local rights here, right? Um, but mm-hmm. for the for the most part, right, we're tapping into the local hospitality market. I would say, and most of the advertisements are nice HD 30 second videos highlighting the offerings from the restaurant. You know, the front of the restaurant, the interior design, the plating, the popular menu items, with nice animi- animation effects in between each scene. Um, And then at the bottom of that video is a interactive banner where you can actually enter your contact information if you want to, say, make a reservation or you can scan a QR code or put your cell phone number down um, or get more information on that business. And so that's kind of, you know, I would say eight out of 10 ads that we run today.
1: And like, has there been... You know, any businesses or um, organizations that like submitted ads where you're kind of like, okay, this is like not the best quality or it's like, um, you know, not the best for like the ride share customers that we're trying to do?
2: Yeah, all the time. Um, And, you know, we had to uh, face that in uh, July when we actually launched um, our, you know, our, our latest iteration of the product. Um, which is our MVP, when we had a goal of donating ad space to 200 local businesses or just businesses in general, um, and 150 signed up. And a lot of them, you know, sent content. And in comparison to kind of the framework we've established, right, with paying advertisers, um, it wasn't up to par. So I think that's actually the exciting part of this business is that, you know, because we're typically serving a disenfranchised group of business, like local, that typically doesn't want to spend 20000 30000 on a billboard, so they don't really have a common sense approach to outdoor advertising yet. It, it allows, you know, a lot, a lot of times, 99% of the times, we have their full attention and ear, right? And so we kind of become a trusted partner in that sense. So, you know, we're able to quickly give them some best practices or connect them with our, you know, graphic design capabilities and, and so forth to turn out, turn around something that's more appropriate. Mm-hmm.
1: When you touch up on like the idea of uh, marginalized businesses, not having mm-hmm. like that $20,000 fund to tap into huge outdoor advertisements. Can you, I, I guess, explain for, you know, an average small business, Um, you know, why is it like ride sharing advertisements is, you know, more suitable versus, or just better quality versus, you know, other outdoor, um, advertising alternatives.
2: Yeah. So I spent a lot of time speaking to agencies and agency partners all the way from small local agencies in Dallas to ones that represent fortune 100 fortune 500 brands. Right. Um, And a lot of them will, and I ask them, I say, hey, you know, what are the channels, you know, types of advertising that your customers spend monthly recurring without question? It's just part of their business operation. And the ones they say typically are, no surprise, you know, Google, Facebook, right? And if you look at Google, Facebook, and you try to start a campaign, right, um, they typically have three goals. One, do you want to increase store traffic? Two, do you want to increase brand awareness? Three, do you want to increase online conversion? People going to your website, etc. You know, filling out a form. So if you're a business and you're saying, why write your advertising over a billboard? It makes a whole lot of sense because um, with a billboard, you're targeting a, even though you know you're going to get a lot of eyeballs. In terms of being hyper specific on your or hyper targeting an audience with the billboard, you're targeting sort of everyone that comes across that billboard in a highway and they might be focused on driving on the road um with us, you can literally be a restaurant in on in uh, main street targeting a customer going to a restaurant in main street on main street, right? It's just that relevant, right? So it's a lot of times it's uh, it, it, like, as far as our value proposition, it's like, number one, we're able to spit together all this data and put it on a easy to use interface to where you don't have to do you know, rocket science to kind of figure out was this campaign effective in terms of returning capital back to the business. And uh, you know, just in a general sense, it just makes a whole lot of sense. Like, hey, I'm a hotel, I can geofence, the right to your displays to play my ad to people being dropped off on my competitor's hotel, literally. Right. So I can a hundred percent guarantee that, you know, my ad was worth the awareness aspect because these are people that are going to hotels live. And that's a huge value proposition of outdoor advertising anyway. Um, but we're able to capitalize that on a whole nother sense because we're literally in the medium that people use to get to and from places.
1: Mm-hmm. And like when you kind of mentioned the idea of, you know, having this uh, data that can make it a unique advertisement experience. So is that like, uh, you know, was that type of traffic and like writer information easy to find, um, you know, for like the way you curate these advertisements?
2: So, you know, we don't take any personal information from the uh, passenger unless they just, you know, they're interested in a specific ad that it goes to that specific advertiser. On a basic level, right, the type of information we use is uh, geospatial, meaning we, we are, we're always aware of the lat long long of the display and where it's going and hence the vehicle itself. Right. And so that's tied into our content scheduling system right? So it, it literally looks for new content to play based on where it is. Uh, that's how the display it works. Um, and then number two, we actually have what's called computer vision. And computer vision is, um, you know, think of like when you take a picture on your phone or a selfie on, with your iPhone or Android and it creates a white box around your face. That's how computer vision works. But instead of taking a picture Of your face and storing it right because that would be a privacy concern it analyzes how old you are based on databases of faces it it determines if you're a male or female Um, it determines if you're happy if you're smiling or you're not right so it kind of almost works like those instagram filters that you may play around with right Um, and we're able to use that to say like hey this person got in the car this is a female this is a male Um, and you know, they're most likely going to a restaurant. Let's target ads because this, this lines up with what this advertiser said is their best type of customer.
1: Mm-hmm. And like, oh, okay. So like the business can like submit uh, data on like the criteria they have or like the uh, type of exactly. customer they're going after?
2: Yeah, so if you wanna advertise on our platform, you can say, hey, only play my ad um, between five and 7 p.m. Monday through Thursday in the specific zip code um, uh, to mails right mm-hmm. and that's how it works that's how granular it is
1: mm. and like with uh, one, I remember one of the a couple of the comments on the WeFunder page it, it seemed like the i think the main criticism towards um, you know one touch go was the idea of you know Uber or Lyft with possibly the same, uh, similar geography, uh, geographic, um, you know, data that they would possibly be able to do this in house. Was there any, uh, I remember you comment on one of the messages was like, uh, you know, I wanted to ask, um, you know, what you normally say if someone brings that up or, you know, what is the solution to that, or, you know, what you kind of forecast for that type of, uh, outcome.
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, we get that question all the time, and I think it's a reasonable question to ask because, on the surface level, it just seems as simple as: what if Uber, you know, puts a hundred thousand displays out there? Um, what does that mean ultimately for the future prospect of your business or startup? Well, uh, number one, I will say, ad networks is probably one of the advertising is probably and being an ad network is probably one of the friendliest industries from a competitive standpoint you'll ever see um, in business. Uh, meaning that companies advertise on Google and they also advertise on Bing and they also advertise on Facebook and they also advertise on Amazon. There's not a one-all solution for an ad network. I'm not aware of any brand that solely is just advertising on one ad network, right? Um, that's an actual traditional, you know, uh, educated marketing professional. Um, so that's that, right? So even if there was a situation where, you know, Uber has screens out there, that's not the end of our business. Um it just comes down to how many screens do we have in comparison, right? Um, number two would be there's other rideshare platforms that we as everyday consumers aren't um, that aware of just because those startup or those rideshare companies don't have as much marketing dollars as, say, a Lyft or Uber. But there's numerous of uh, actually, there's more drivers outside of Uber and Lyft. Um, believe it or not, professional drivers, like a good example is like just with the taxi space alone, there's estimated up to 17 million of them. And just between Uber and Lyft, there's only three to four. Right. So there's like infinite space. Um, and then for in order for our company to reach its magnum opus. Right. I would say or right, as far as what we think we can get to reasonably is 40,000 displays. So there's like millions of the opportunities out there. Right. And it just keeps growing because the gig economy is expanding. Then from a competitive standpoint like okay if uber was to make this offering today what can they offer the advertiser that you can't um you know uber has the ability to tap into that user's personal information however i think that's a pr nightmare like why would like no one wants uber to use their personal trip information and then display their uber account on the display without their permission so uh essentially what we've done is you know there there was no blueprint for us to follow for this type of thing when we started, uh, so we've built a lot of essentially patentable things that make right your advertising possible, scalable, operationally manageable, and competitive with other forms of advertising. If um, you were to advertise on a right your vehicle, but you couldn't determine how many store visits you got, you're not spending money on that more likely. Uh, again in comparison to Facebook. So like when Uber looks at our business, we're more likely a acquired uh, company because it doesn't matter. Uber can write a check for a hundred million dollars and not flinch, right? Um, That's the nature of it. Um, So, you know, if they happen to catch us at a good time when we just exist within the right share space, I think it ultimately makes a whole lot of sense for them because it's like, you know, operationally, they can acquire a company that innovated its business model that's fresh and has a fresh perspective of things. But if they don't, you know, um, you know, right? your advertising is just one aisle out of our store, our, our larger technical vision for the company uh, goes beyond one or two common right platforms, but the general concept of targeting content, and, and and even information to people that are on the move, right. And the reason why we started with right your advertising is, you know, number one, it's more appealing to sell and go to market with. And then number two, from a um, capital resource perspective, it's like a lot easier to start writer your advertising than say, try to buy a digital billboard on the side of Main Street or something.
1: Mm-hmm. And like with, uh, when you kind of bring up the idea that ride sharing isn't like 100% your business and that you're doing other parts of the business are like the other avenues you're going down with, uh, you know, are those electronic outdoor advertisements. And cause I remember it saying like on the website, like th- that, you know, such a minority percentage of like outdoor advertisements were, you know, electronic. And I was kind of wondering, you know. The reason for that and the reason why you guys are trying to, you know, go into electronic outdoor advertisements.
2: Yeah. So less than 4% of the displays to use in outdoor advertising um, are you know, electronic, right? So meaning that if you wanted to advertise on 96% of the industry's displays or canvases, they have to be painted or printed and manually installed with a team. And then think about how long that's going to take in terms of speed. Why not just put a thousand bucks on Google right now and, and be live in the next 30 minutes, right? So that's a lot of the growing pains the industry has. And then ultimately, as far as like, when is that going to, to change well, you know, money matters in a um, capitalist economy. So, the more agencies demand digital outdoor ads because you know, companies like us are able to emerge um, within the country and kind of prove out the case, the use case for this. Um, the, the more that happens, and the more the demand grows, the more the players in the industry, like a Clear Channel, an Outfront Media, or a JC Deco, that have, you know, virtually all the digital billboards or the billboards in general you would come in contact with in the U.S., um, will abide and start, you know, converting more of their displays to digital format. Um, the incentives simply have to kind of make sense for both parties, and right now it just there's, I guess, there's not enough incentives um, for the the major players to, you know, start. Con- spending you know tens of thousands of dollars per display to convert hundreds of thousands tens of thousands of uh billboards
1: mm-hmm. and when you bring up like the idea of y- kind of the benefactors and uh, with your business um what when like time is money and like outdoor advertisements that aren't electronic you know possibly take up uh more and more time i was kind of wondering if you know was that infected also by the COVID-19 pandemic. I know, like, I I remember seeing kind of a blog on your website where you kind of mentioned, um, you know, the negative impacts on, you know, uh, One Touch Go, but a lot of firms, I was wondering if you wanted to, like, expand on them.
2: Yeah, so you know, as far as COVID impacting the industry, like looking at 2019, eight and a half billion dollars was spent in outdoor advertising, and it was growing at four percent year over year. And at twenty in 2020, um, you know, based on facts and figures by uh, the Outdoor Association, uh, spend in the U.S. for outdoor advertising dropped by um, like two billion, a little bit over two billion dollars. Um, Right. And so it's all some negative growth there. Um, So I think what it caused um, was a ripple effect. You know, outdoor advertising is something that the major brands typically try to plan a year in advance or so or allocate a specific budget annually to do, or four. Um, and so when that happened, it literally sets everything back a year two, three even, right? Based on priorities and goals, because those businesses that are the biggest advertisers in the world, the Coca-Cola's, the Pepsi's, the Geico's, the Apple's, right? Depending on what their business goals are from like sales and revenue, like, you know, they, they might, see outdoor advertising as just like a experimental thing and not necessarily a direct correl- correlation to immediate revenue. Right. So it kind of just sets everything back. But how it affects us is like, you know, some of the greatest companies actually have emerged from um, the recession. Right. 2008. Right. And, and then after. Right. And so and the reason why is like you just learn to shift your business model to be more uh, adaptable and run your operation more lean. So you're, you're not one of those startups that's spending millions and millions of dollars on random things and and a cool office, and you don't have that mentality. So um, on TouchGo, quite literally, we have a dog mentality, right? Like we, we know what it is to raise, you know, 200,000 or so. um, And a couple weeks later, the whole world economy crashes, right? That, that type of event works numbers on your mind, right? And so you either survive that or you just close up the LLC and cry home to mom and, you know, we're still here, Mm -hmm. right? So um, I think we're in a better position for it. And I think some of the things we're doing really well right now are a direct result because of that experience. Mm
1: -hmm. And with the idea, when you kind of said that COVID, you know, possibly benefited and kind of brought up the idea of being lean, Um, you know, with your business, uh, with the idea of being lean, was there any like major expenses or anything that the business was possibly originally putting money to that COVID taught you was, you know, possibly a waste or that you kind of leaned off of?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I think how I've fundamentally shifted my mindset, uh, or perspective on, um, on, how we utilize capital and resources is quite, quite literally like if it's not making us, if it's not making us money or saving us money, I'm just not interested in, in, in that expense right, right now. Right. And so, and I think like we've learned, how do you acquire a customer without a lot of capital? Right. And, you know, to, to be honest, right. Like, um, just taking a holistic view of right-share advertising, right? Um, I'm going to reference two companies like Octopus, right, which is more of a direct competitor, although, again, ad networks are extremely friendly. I called them a great product earlier. Um, they've raised over $10, $13 million. Um, Firefly, which is not really a direct competitor, but they have digital top or rooftop displays on uh, tac- or taxis and ride shares, right? And they do holograms and cool things like that. They've raised over $50 million, right? We raised 200000 right? With like They spend our entire amount of capital we've had access to in a day, right? So like, and, like, and we're here, right? And we have scale and we have size and we have notable clients and, and companies we've worked with, like a Warner Bros, right? For example, for Space Jam. So I think uh, in general, it's like our, our mindset has, has uh, you know, whatever inefficiencies we would have had when we unlock our larger round for X million or, or, or what have you, um, I think we eliminated a lot of that by going through this experience, right? Because also because of COVID, a lot of the venture capital towards rights, your advertising, which was already a boutique and niche sort of, um, investment, uh, space for venture capitalists anyway, um, kind of eroded. So like it, it, just made us have to extend our runway a lot faster and figure out ways to become profitable. And so right now we're actually monthly operating profitable, which is, um, highly unusual for a startup of uh, this early. Mm
1: -hmm. No, like with the idea of uh, when you kind of mentioned, you know, not trying to waste capital and, you know, some of these businesses working on or like spinning much higher capital than, you know, your organization does. I wanted to, and kind of with the venture capital, uh, you know, normal investments going down. I wanted to bring up like the idea of going on to WeFunder, you know, what, I, I guess brought that up to your organization. You know, uh why did you guys choose that idea outside of um, you know, other investing sources and just kind of uh you know what it's been like so far?
2: Yeah. So, you know, citing one of the biggest people, right, in um venture capital, right, Mark It right? He he says to give you a holistic picture um there's around 4,000 startups that emerge in the u.s every year um out of those 4,000 startups they're all interested in getting capital obviously but um less than 200 or two only 200 of them get funding from top tier uh vcs right and then out of those 215 actually deliver the returns those vcs are looking for so like um And what was your original question, right? There's a reason I brought that up, but just to make sure I don't go off topic. um, Can you ask me that question one more time?
1: Oh, no, just like the idea of, um, you know, what led to the idea of going on WeFunder and, you know, how has it been so far?
2: Yeah, so go, yeah, exactly. Thank you. So uh, how that ties in is, look, we faced a lot of the biases of these people are not the 15, right? You're advertising what we're talking to a medical tech company you know, so this is what my day typically, you know, would look like. I would have like five, 10 investment meetings. I would hop on a zoom link or something or whatever, some other startup that's trying to do communications creates. Now there's like a thousand of them, but I would hop on those links and I'd say, hello, this is what we're doing for on touch go. And, you know, I get off that call. They're speaking to some medical tech company from some guy that's probably from Stanford, Yale, Harvard, Wharton, whatever. Right. And they're already at, 20 million revenue run rate. Right. And so like, as far as like why we're on WeFunder is because like naturally, like we felt disenfranchised from the entire, like just VC landscape, right. In general, like it's, it's kind of crazy to me, right. That uh, early stage company could be working with notable brands, like that have millions of, you know, millions upon millions in, in, in budget, but like kind of also it'd be difficult. Right. Um, So like, that was also something that to this day, like I still work through like how to how to get more, you know, communicate better, right? Um, in terms of raising capital, because it's just it's, it was originally kind of a head scratcher. It's like these guys they they come from a sales background, they've led sales teams, they've generated millions of revenue. How is that not going to correlate to a, a more exciting product? And they already demonstrated they have the brands. So that's something I faced, and so I guess. Uh, and we face, so I guess like we got to a point where, like, this is an extremely marketable product. Like, half the people we talk to about this already ask, can they invest anyway? Let's just put it on a platform that allows anyone to invest and see what happens. And so, um, literally, that's what we've done. Um, so, on the WeFunder platform, we already have like close to 60 investment reservations. Um, and combining the WeFunder and the uh other private placements we have, you know, we're trying to raise a million bucks. I think we're around like 13% subscribed already. Right. So like and we've done that within like three, four months maybe. And uh so I, I think that's just a testament towards, you know, how fast a like a peer-to-peer play like WeFunder can actually accelerate fundraising for a startup like us. Mm-hmm.
1: And like on the idea of when you're kind of going into original VC meetings and then going on WeFunder, uh, you know, is there any tips when it comes to, I guess, preparing like a pitch deck for investors or like when you go into meetings, is it, I guess, how deep, how much of a deep dive do you do? And it's like the quantitative data or is it, you know, just kind of just giving the bullet points or is it qualitative? Like how does a, you know, investor meeting normally go?
2: Yeah. So you're going to hear different things if you Google what how to present uh, um, ultimately a pitch deck to an investor. Now, typically you start with your, you know, name and introduction, your problem, your solution, your market size, how big the market is, um, you know, um, maybe some traction, right? Um, you know, some screenshots of your software, of your software application, your team, um, and, you know, if there's different parts of your competitive landscape, and then ultimately what you're asking to raise, um, but ultimately, look, that's just a guideline. What it ultimately comes down to, and the biggest perspective that if someone had told me this, like maybe in 2019, I'd either be further along than I am, or would have saved days and weeks of my time, um, is look, when you start a startup and you're looking to get capital. Imagine you're in a room with 4000 people. Out of those 4000 people, let's say half are from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Wharton. That doesn't mean they're smarter than you, of course. That means that on paper, it's more easy to sway other people that they might be smarter than other people in the room. So you're competing against some of the, you know, the next Elon Musk basically or whoever, the next group of people. And so like ultimately, is is one slide and a specific Arial font over Poppins going to determine if they put an investment in your company or not? Absolutely not. And that's something that VCs should, uh, you know, kind of be ashamed that they're not being that transparent about. It all comes down to do they think you're that 15 or do they think you're part of the 200? So you have to have strong data. Um, you know, me personally, I have built. A lot of supporting data to prove that this works. Um, you know financial models outside of the traditional financial model templates that you might find online that are very extensive. Um, we're very transparent. We have all the paperwork necessary from A to Z ready to go within a timely manner when someone asks to look at a you know go through due diligence with our company. Um, so, so we get those compliments a lot, but it ultimately comes down to is this VC that I'm talking to? going to believe I am that 15 out of the 4,000 this year? And if the answer is no, it's not the end of the world. But what we need to do as a country or just as a peer group of entrepreneurs to start innovating new models for those people that get turned away for not being that 15 out of that 4,000 can still thrive, right? There's there's ways to actually generate revenue and get capital without fundraising that don't get highlighted uh, as much. So in short, that's kind of my, um, I guess, views on, on that specific uh, topic.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, really with like the different financials and the financial tables you're working with, I I remember saying on the the WeFunder page that, you know, if someone invests like, you know, I definitely need to obviously invest a hundred bucks and, you know, jump on your business. But uh, I I was seeing like that your company offers uh, a safe like future equity. I was wondering if you wanted to like explain, you know, someone decided to invest what that means to an average investor.
2: Yes. Yeah, so full disclosure, right? I'm not a um, attorney, right? So I just want to say that on the line in case someone copies and pastes this, but my, understa- <laughs> my understanding of how it all works, right? So typically when a company startup raises capital, they typically use um, um, a securities, right? As it's called by the SEC. And those securities are typically either a safe or a convertible note, right? There's also like potentially a loan, right? That someone can give you. Um, and simply put, A safe is a very cost-effective way to raise capital without occurring, you know, little to no legal cost, right? Um, So a safe is just an agreement that when a company goes through an official, you know, attorney-lawyered-up round of financing, right, it's often maybe the first institutional round of capital they get or first priced round where you actually have a price per share. um, It's going to convert based on the metrics of the SAFE document. So like even though there's a valuation cap, it's by, you know, de facto the valuation if that makes sense and then there's typically things like discounts that, you know, if the company ends up going through a, a formal valuation and pricing per share and the company's valuation is not as high as what's set on the valuation cap of the SAFE, then um, you know you as an early investor get a discount per share so you know if it you know an example it ends up being a dollar per share and you have a 20 percent discount you get shares at uh, 80 cents versus a dollar right so that's how that works and then there's convertible notes which are essentially more secure than saves in the sense that every it's a debt so like if the investor wanted to um, when the debt uh, expires because they have a what's called a maturity date um, when that expires, they can uh, essentially seize assets to get their capital back, right, um, on the convertible note, right. And so, it, and then they accrue interest every year, typically, right. So there's saves, and then there's convertible notes, right. And so, it, as far as like what most startups do, saves it's just more easy. It's just it causes less friction um, for the current present, and then also for future rounds when you start working with bigger Names that want to invest in you and, and more months of money in you.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, really, I wanted to, I guess, like to wrap up the episode, I just wanted to, you know, ask, um, you know, is there any future, I guess, milestones or projects related to Go that, you know, you're excited about? I know you kind of, uh, you're originally mentioning on just like with WeFunder and the other peer-to-peer programs you guys have as far as raising money. Um, But just like, yeah, with the outdoor advertisements or well, or just anything with a business.
2: Yeah, so what we're excited about most from our product roadmap standpoint is, uh, again, going back to the speed that I mentioned earlier, like if you wanted to do a billboard, 96% of it has to be printed, installed, etc. Like we're one of the only, to my knowledge, one of the only writer advertising platforms that not only does self-reporting, meaning we're giving you the analytics of your campaign online in real time, but you being able to essentially in the same amount of time that you're able to start a campaign on Facebook, able to start a campaign in the real world, right, on screens near you, right? And so that's literally coming. Um, I'm leaving you in suspense of when that is supposed to roll out, but, you know, it could be as early as this week, right? So um, we're going through some testing. Um, so that's as far as I c- What's next and what we're focused on, that would be it. Um, expect more markets out of us. So, you know, we started in Dallas. Um, you know, now we're offering impressions in Austin, Houston, and San Antonio. And, like, we're taking um, early reservations for those markets. And then we'll be operational um, Q1 of next year. Um, and then we'll add some additional markets next year. So, um, yeah, that's and, – and, and as far as outside of our core business model, I think uh, right now, um, you know, ad networks and ad tech, it kind of grows really slowly meaning you can invent the next cool thing that will cover the next 20 years of industry but as far as like users getting used to what you're building and using it on a day-to-day it takes some time so we're being very slow and just making sure we're not outgrowing our customers and listening to what they need right right here and now but that's the next thing or those are some of the next things that are on our product product roadmap Mm -hmm. to answer your question
1: Mm. no definitely well you know thank you again bo for you know be able to talk about one touch Go, um, And also just kind of expand on just what you've learned about entrepreneurship, kind of, uh, you know, some lessons to give to anyone like trying to jump in as far as, you know, doing pitch decks, maybe pitching to investors, trying to gain capital, seeing what their market is like. And honestly, yeah, it was a really cool chat just on uh, just kind of going into entrepreneurships. I, I've kind of had some, you know, small business conversations, but I, I think not being able to touch it, touch on it on like some of these kind of investor levels. So no, it was really cool.
2: Yeah, it was, you know, a pleasure to be a guest and, you know, happy to do this uh, again at a later point. And uh, yeah, thank, thanks for uh, having me as a guest today, Grayson.
0: We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the You can also join the discussion on Instagram at graymask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.